Hello, it's Shelley F. Knight, bringing you Positive Changes, a self-kick podcast. show we're joined by Leah M. Forney and she's author of Defining Moments and podcast host of Hey Queen Thrive. So hello to Leah. Hi. Hello. I'm loving the sassy name of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I've been I tell you I was like trying to figure out a podcast name for so long and then who knew all I had to take do was take a nap and then voila (laughs) come to me in a dream and so that's how hey queen thrive came about i love it 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 is sassy absolutely love it so bless you i know you've got quite a backstory so please Mm -hmm. do share your story about positive changes yeah so i am originally from queens new york um born and raised by my maternal grandmother because my parents both uh were drug addicts my mom was a drug addict my dad was a drug addict and an alcoholic so my mom actually had six children and she gave them all up and so my grandmother she raised myself my older brother and my youngest sister and then the other three were actually adopted by a different family so um, you can only imagine you know growing up and knowing that you are different and feeling different because you're looking at like your friends in the neighborhood and they have both parents and you don't have both parents and you know just the things you feel like you missed out like I I always look think back and I think about how I didn't get to go to daddy daughter dances and things like that because my parents weren't around um but I actually didn't find out about their addiction until I was a teenager so my grandmother kind of hid it from me for a long time um, because, and I get it now, because back then it was like, well, why wouldn't you tell me? But it was more of her protecting us. So she just waited till we were about 17 years old to finally just come out and say, this was what was going on. But I, I always knew because we would go to like, you know, the doctor, for instance, and I'm getting a checkup and they would always ask about my mother and father. And she would always say, oh, we have to talk about that in private. So I kind of knew something. <laughs> I just didn't know what it was. Um, so yeah, growing up, it was just difficult. Like I, I had anger issues as a kid, um, because I just couldn't make sense of why I didn't have my parents, but then I struggled emotionally a lot because I felt like I wasn't good enough, you know? And I questioned that I questioned, like, was I not good enough for my parents? Why my parents, um, didn't want me, which eventually, as an adult, those same those same feelings manifested and then it made it difficult to trust. It made it difficult to be vulnerable with people because um, I just didn't trust people because I didn't have my parents. So fast forward into a, my 20s, if you will, I started writing, um, but I've always been a writer. So as a kid, my grandma used to tell me, I used to pin poems and letters to Santa and Jesus. That's what she used to tell me. She was like, you're <laughs> writing. Um, and I felt that writing was an escape for me. It was an escape. It was therapeutic for me. So I would just write little things. I would just write like poems, quotes, short stories, things like that. And then around 2017, um, well, 2016 to 2017, I decided 
I'm going to write a book. Um, and that's where I, prim- I, I wrote my very first book, Unapologetically Me, which is actually the story of what it was like growing up without my mother and father and just some of the struggles that I had. And so that was like the beginning of using writing to, to kind of um, talk about my pain. Because for a while I stayed out of, like, I eventually went to therapy, but for a while it was like, I, I, I didn't know I wanted to go to therapy. So I just wrote and wrote, writing was just the thing that kind of got it out, but never did I think, okay, <laughs> I'm gonna get it out and turn this into a book. Like <laughs> I, I didn't see that, but my friends used to always tell me, you're a great storyteller. You should tell it. Like you should really tell your story. And then I learned the power and really telling your story and really being um, unapologetic about who you are and where you come from. I absolutely love that. I was just thinking back, I know we can't go back on our past and change it, but I was thinking, bless your grandmother, you know, you sort of like protecting you for 17 years. I have to ask the question, if she'd have told you the truth about your parents from the start, would that have helped you, do you think? You know what, I don't know because even now as a, as an adult and my father has passed, but I think I've always just saw my, my parents as like a hero to me. It's the weirdest thing. Like this, this can, and I guess because those are my parents. So I never, even knowing all that they've done and, and the pain that they caused, it's hard to look at them at anything less than like that's mom and dad. Um, so I don't know if it would, I don't think if it, it would have changed anything. And it's weird because growing up in New York, I never saw my parents un- under the influence of drugs or alcohol. So it's like I got the protection both ways because I got it from my grandmother. But then spiritually, I felt like, you know, God was protecting me. I mean, my parents and I were in the same city and yeah. I, we never crossed paths. I never saw what it was like to see my mom under the influence of drugs or my dad under the influence of drugs. So even hearing that this was their issue, it was kind of like hard because I'm like, never seen them like that but then I also never really saw them because my dad he was always in and out of prison and the few times he came around like he was sober so it was hard to even think that he had an issue yeah I think that's really beautiful the fact you said that they're kind of like your heroes and I think that is part of it isn't it we have this unconditional love for our parents yeah I mean like I was raised by my parents and they divorced but you know I don't know what it is. It must be this unconditional love, but you can't really think of a bad thing to say. It just is what it is almost, isn't it? Yeah. So you had a really, I think it's beautiful, like positive kind of take on it. What about your siblings? How did they process it? No, I probably am the more um, optimistic one than my siblings. Uh, They all still to this day struggle with um, who our parents are and were and, and kind of that lifestyle. Um, that they chose to live. My older brother, he's very um, <clears throat> nonchalant about it. He kind of just acts like it doesn't exist. Uh, I think it affected my sisters and I the more, especially with our father, um, because I, I just believe that daddy is your first love, right? Like you yeah. kind of learn what a man looks like and what type of man you should want from dad. And so just not having that, I think it impacted us the more than it impacted my brothers because 
we had to kind of discover what kind of man we should be dating and in relationships with kind of on our own through trial and error. Whereas I think if we had dad there to really like validate us and, and remind us how beautiful we were and how worthy we were, we probably would have chose different men for our lives um, at that time. For my brothers, I think that they, again, they both just act like it doesn't, it doesn't infect them. But I think deep down inside it does, because I, again, I think your father is so crucial for both men and women, because who teaches the boy how to be a man if he doesn't have, you know, his dad in his life? Um, but I think my, my brothers struggle more with our mom not being around than our dad not being around. Yeah. I love that. Thank you for explaining. Now, your book is called Unapologetically Me, which I love. Mm -hmm. Did you have a sense of who you were? I know you're saying like you're not apologizing for who you are, but did you, with your parents not being around, did you understand who you were? Or do you have like a loss of identity around that? I definitely in the beginning had a loss of identity. Um, I spent like probably my twenties really trying to figure out who I was and, and, and what I wanted out of my life. I named it unapologetically me because it was me really saying that I'm not going to be ashamed about where I come from. I'm not going to be ashamed about having two parents um, who are addicts. I'm not going to be ashamed about it because when I was a kid, I was like, people would ask me about who my parents were and I would lie about it. Oh, my daddy's a chef. My mom does this. You know, like I would just lie about it because I wanted to fit in. Um, but as I got older, it was like, I'm not going to be ashamed about it. Like, this is where I come from. And to be honest, I have learned since writing that book, how much my story is like so many others. And so many other people have come out and said, you know what, thank you for saying that you're unapologetic about who you are and what you come from, because now I can be the same way. And that was really the reason why I named it that. Cause I'm like, you know what, I've just been walking around with all this shame and, and feelings of like, oh, I gotta hide who make, what makes me me. And I'm not gonna do that anymore. I absolutely love that because I think it is so easy to define ourselves, isn't it? Or to sort of say like, I am this way because of my parents, but you're really beautiful that you're not ashamed of yourself, not ashamed of them. And I think that's beautiful about everyone's life story involved. I truly do. Yeah. So you went along for the 17 years and then sort of like grandma said, like, actually, this is the truth. And then the 20s, you started sort of like I don't know, unpackaging it all and things like that. So was this part of the positive change where you've gone from like growing up with this anger and this sort of loss of identity into actually this is who I am? Was this the positive change? Yeah, I, I think that, so I, I, I think the shift began definitely in my early 20s where once I went to my grandmother and we had the conversation and she shared with me, this is who my parents were. Um, at the time, my father's side of the family wasn't even in my life um, yet. And I remember having that conversation with my grandmother and I was like, grandma, listen, I really need to know where I come from. Like, I need to know this other side of my family. And she was hesitant, you know, because she's like, ah, I don't know. It was kind of like opening Pandora's box, you <laughs> know, what we were going to get. But she gave me her blessing, you know, and she said, okay, if you really feel like you need to do this then I'm going to support you in it. So probably in my early 20s, I connected with my father's side of the family. I met my um, father's mom for the first time. And, you know, just being able to see 
where some of my characteristics came from because you know as kids you have these personalities and you're like where does this come from like why <laughs> you know where does these little quirks and kinks come from so I got around my father's side of the family I met my aunts I met cousins I got to see all these pictures hear all these stories and I started to put the pieces of the puzzle together and it was like okay this makes sense why I have this part of my personality this makes sense so that was kind of the beginning of the positive change because Prior to that, I, I felt on, like I wasn't whole. Like I felt like there was just pieces of the puzzle and there were missing pieces. And so I went on this journey in my early 20s of really figuring out who is Leah M. Forty, where does she come from? What is her background like? You know, who is her father? Who is her mother? And really doing a lot of uh, soul searching and just research and just connecting. So that was the beginning of the positive change for me because now when I wrote the book, it was like, yeah, I am unapologetically me. I am <laughs> like, this is who I am. You know, I come from a father who has Southern roots. My mom has, you know, like I knew these things, whereas prior to, I didn't. I think your message today is going to help so many people because I think there's so many people have grown up with sort of like absent parents or absent carers and things like that, or even not even grown up at parts in their life, their parents have been absent. Yeah. And it's brilliant that you've said like, you know, you have these light bulb moments where you think, ah, now I get that bit of personality. Cause I think we do think, you know, I don't know who I am. Part of me is missing. Part of my understanding is missing. Yeah. And with that, you know, we can get angry and frustrated or think we're not good enough because we don't really know who we are to be enough and things like that. So I think your message is really going to help. What I would love to ask is what tools did you use to go on this soul searching journey towards positive change? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm a spiritual person. I grew up in a church. My grandmother raised me in a church. So I definitely relied on my faith in God for sure. Um, but then I, the other thing is just having that support system. I, I honestly think if my grandmother did not support me in this journey, it would have been really difficult. I probably would have done it anyway because my, a part of my personality is to be a little rebellious. I probably <laughs> would have done it anyway, but just having that support, knowing that she was going to be there, whether you know it worked out or didn't work out, like she was going to be there, was definitely helpful. Um, of course, emotionally, I definitely journaled. You know, because you can imagine I'm meeting my father's side of the family for the first time and all these stories and all this information is coming at me and just needing to process that emotionally. I definitely journal. I still journal. Um, but then I also started therapy uh, as well, just to have that emotional outlet to really just unpack this thing and really figure out, you know, what parts of it is worth you know, keeping in what parts of it, I'm like, eh, I don't want to deal with that. So all of those things combined can, and still though, like continues to help me on this journey towards positivity and continuing to change. That's fabulous. What I really loved, I don't know why, you know, things just resonate with you in life. When you went, when you're like looking back, you've learned all these stories from your dad's side and you just think what's worth keeping. Yeah. And I love that because we hold on to so much, don't we? Sort of our story, yeah. other people's story, our memories or how we think things are. But I love that, like what's worth keeping. And I think that's gorgeous. Yeah, because I mean, you know, my dad struggled with addiction. So of course you hear the stories of, 
oh, your father was an addict and he was in prison and all. You hear the negative narrative, right? And, but I'm like, underneath all that, who was he? So then to hear that, like, his passion was to cook and he wanted to be a chef. And those were the, the parts of the story that I wanted to keep. And that, and again, that goes back to why my my parents are heroes to me because I it's easy to harp on the negative narrative, right? It's easy to harp on what they are not good at or what they don't do or what. It's the hardest thing is to hold on to the parts of them that are good, and that's probably why I've always had that thought process because I'm like, you know, I can always be like everybody else and think of them in a very negative light, or I can change the narrative and and hold on to the parts of them that make them good people despite their flaws I just think it's really beautiful I truly do and it sounds like I'm sure it didn't <laughs> but it sounds like it just flowed like you just sort of like you know at 17 your grandma was really honest about you and then you went down like you know the writing and the journaling the talking therapy so it sounds like it just flowed but I'm sure it didn't because it's always easy to tell the story towards the end of the outcome yeah. But was there forgiveness or anything that was needed from the past? Or is it you just, it is what it is? Yeah, I had to. I had to come to the place where I had to forgive my parents. And there was actually a time, I want to say maybe I was about 27 years old, where I actually, so both my parents happened to be in the same state. Um, I lived, I was living in North Carolina at the time. Both of them had wound up moving down there. Um, to leave New York to try to really do this recovery and sobriety thing. Um, and just being able to have that conversation in that time and really tell my dad, you know, how his absence impacted my life. Um, and to really tell my mom, you know, how her not being there to kind of help me through those womanhood issues um, impacted my life was, was definitely a powerful moment for both of us because in those moments, I got to hear their heart and I got to hear how they ended up in their own struggle. Um, I remember asking both of them, like, why? Like, how did, how did you get here? You know, and then hearing story, my mom's story and her sharing, you know, being molested as a young girl. And that's kind of how she ended up doing drugs to kind of escape the pain. And my dad, you know, sharing, you know, hearing that he was a fatherless child because his dad was murdered. And, and how drinking, you know, at a young age was his way of dealing with the pain. So just finally getting that answer, because I think for, for children who grow up without their parents, there's always that question of why. <laughs> so yeah. it took 20 something years, but I finally got the answer, which, which made it so much easier to let them off the hook, because now I had the answer to why, and I was able to free myself and finally say, this had nothing to do with me. So for 20 some years, I was living thinking that my parents' addiction was because of me. Because, and, and that was the narrative I told myself that, oh, I'm not good enough. And that's why they left. And they, you know, and then finally hearing it from them, what led to their, their addiction was so freeing for me because then it was like, no, this doesn't have anything to do with me. This is, you know, their their trauma and their issues. And that's how they they decided to deal with it. And so in those moments, I was finally able to say, you know what, mom, you know what, dad, I forgive you. I forgive you. And really, I learned then that 
they loved me so much that they had, they gave me up. And I learned that that was the hardest thing that they could do. And it took 20 some years to get there, but that was the moment that everything changed for me because it was like, wow, that's a real, that's to me, that was the ultimate sacrifice of love. I love you enough to say, I can't do this. So I'm going to put you in the hands of someone who can. That's beyond beautiful. I just, I'm almost speechless, which is amazing, Leah, because I'm quite probably <laughs> normally. <laughs> it's just, wow. I think it's really courageous that you even ask those questions to your parents, yeah. you know, to actually say sort of like, what was the trigger behind your addiction behavior? And I love the fact you had the courage to ask that because otherwise you could still be living that narrative, like I'm not good enough, they did drugs because of me, my siblings, whatever. But you found the courage somewhere within your beautiful body to ask them like, why? Yeah. And their reasons are so valid. Like your mum yeah. was molested, your dad was fatherless due to you know a murder, They're like major, major, major yeah. things, which has got nothing to do with the narrative you were telling yourself. So to find the courage is life-changing for you your parents, hopefully your siblings and anyone listening say, it's just amazing. <laughs> yeah, it, it was the moment I realized that my parents were human and they were human Aww. with human emotions that went through human, uh, you know, situations that led them down this path. I think a lot of times we forget that our parents are, they are human, you know, and they have a backstory and they have some things that have happened and that's why they are who they are. Um, so finally, just that was the moment where I'm like, you know what? I've been putting them on this pedestal like they're this superhero and they're just human. Yeah, I think it's absolutely amazing. I'm thinking like people listening today that have been, you know, adopted or fostered or, you know, given their own children away because of, you know, the as you said so beautifully, I won't do it half as eloquently as you did, Leah, but, you know, that um, because of pure love, because of duty to give you the best life, the best chance, you know, out of pure love, that's why it happened. Yeah. And I just think that's an amazing message to share out there today. Yeah. I can see why your book's called Unapologetically Me, because you've got absolutely nothing to apologise for. It's absolutely amazing, your story. Thank you. Thank Absolutely you. amazing. I just find you so inspirational. I just think it's gorgeous. <laughs> You're gorgeous. <laughs> and whilst you. it's a really traumatic story along the way, you know, so many mm. lost years, so many lost conversations, things like that. I think it's absolutely the most beautiful story I've heard in a long time. Thank you. So bless you. So you wrote as part of your tools for healing, you've got unapologetically me, but there's another book you, you're still writing. You're still doing this therapy, this healing and helpers. So tell us about the next one, defining moments. Yeah. So defining moments, um, is actually probably the most difficult book to write. So I, I'm a nonfiction writer. So all my books are pulled from definitely true events, um, parts of my story, uh, defining moments. I started writing that book, um, maybe six months to a year after I buried my fiance. And so he died unexpectedly the day after Mother's Day in 2018. Um, and so it's weird because when define, when I, I, I usually pray when I'm getting ready to write a book and in my prayer time, that was like what was revealed to me that I needed to share my story with grief. But it was hard because I was still grieving. 
So it was like, oh, you want me to put on paper <laughs> this whole story while still living it. Um, but I, I needed to do it because I needed to show a process. I needed my readers to see kind of how grief works. And I did that because I think a lot of times we, we don't know how to really help people or handle people while they're grieving. You know, we say very, you know, cliche things like, oh, you know, God needed them more than they did or stuff like that that just doesn't make sense. Um, and so with this book, I wanted to detail my journey with grief, but I really wanted to show people the ups and downs, the emotions, the ins and outs of how people grieve. Um, I'm a fan of the, you know, the um, stages of grief, but what I always share with people is that healing is not linear. It's not like you go from one stage to another stage to another stage. And it's all over the place. Like there's moments where you're like, you know, you've been in denial, then all of a sudden acceptance show up. Like there's, you know, there's these different ways of how it comes. But then I also wanted to show people that grief comes in waves. It's not that people are, you know, up every day, crying every day. Like some days they're just perfectly fine. And then there's something happens, they smell something, they see something, something triggers an emotion that reminds them of their loved one. And then here comes grief. And so for those who are grieving, I wanted to, them to see that it's okay to grieve and that you should just ride the wave when it comes. Like I still, he's been gone almost three years and I still have moments of grief, you know, and I just ride the wave, like just let it happen. Um, so the finding moments, it, it details my grief journey, um, starting with the death of my fiance, but I also had four other deaths in one year. So my fiance died. Then one of my closest um, sister friends, she got murdered. Then my dad died. And then my father-in-law died, which was my fiance's dad. And then one of my, my brother's best friend, who was like another brother to me, he committed suicide all in one year. <laughs> so I wanted to show that multiple griefs, you know, multiple deaths and grieving multiple people can be hard, but it can be done. And so in the book, I detail some of the steps or some of the ways that I've been able to get on the other side of grief. And so one of the chapters, I focus on support. Um, and I learned a funny lesson about support. I learned that support is a, is a two-way street, right? I learned that support requires you to actually tell people what you need, but then it also requires you to be open to receiving what you say you need. And how I learned that lesson was, while I was grieving, I was isolating myself. But yet at the same time, I was getting frustrated with the people in my life because I'm like, they should just know. Why aren't they calling? Why aren't they checking on me? Why? And I remember praying, I'm like, God, I'm over here grieving by myself. And God was like, because you're just, you're not letting people in. You're not letting people in. And I'm like, I am letting people in. And then one of my, my best friends, she calls me and she just has a real heart to heart. And she's like, I'm trying to be there for you but you keep pushing me away. And I learned then that if I want support, then I have to be willing to tell people what that support is and how it looks for me. But then I also have to be open to receiving it. So one of the ways that I, and I talk about it in the chapter that I helped my friends be able to help me was we came up with a code word. And so anytime I text them that code word, they knew I was having a grief moment I needed just a listening ear or just 
just call me or something. And so I showed in that chapter that sometimes support is not always a conversation. Sometimes support is, hey, I'm just going to show up and sit on your bed today and be quiet. You know, sometimes I'm going to, I'll send you some food. Sometimes support is, because the reality is when you've lost a loved one, what people miss out in grief is that, okay, the primary loss is that my loved one is gone. The secondary loss is now I have to figure out this thing called life without my loved one. So for a spouse or a fiance, that is, okay, we just went from one income, like two incomes to one. That is, what does even life look like? I still got to pay the bills. I still, if I have children, I still, the children still got to have normal lives. So you have all these other parts of your loss that you now have to figure out. And that's why grief can be so complex. I love it. I don't even know about my... I talk so much about grief. My next book's about grief and it's so true <laughs> what you've been saying. So I, I think I say about communication in my book yeah. and it's what you're saying that people say like, oh, you know, well, they're in a better place. And you think, well, I don't care really because I want them here, <laughs> you know, and not everyone believes they're in a better place because they don't believe yeah. in an afterlife. You know, I know you have great faith with yourself and I do as well, but and I think that's what happens, isn't it? Around communication and support that people don't know what to say and I yeah. personally it's what I say in the next book personally I'd rather someone had a good old try even if they said the wrong thing because at least that means they're there with me yeah so even if they say something absolutely ridiculous like oh well don't worry tomorrow's <laughs> Thursday or they're in a better place or yeah. things happen for a reason I think well at least you're showing up at least you're trying yeah <laughs> rather than the people that I've had that have physically crossed the road I'm thinking I can see you, you know, grief, you know, doesn't cause blindness as far as I know from 30 years in healthcare. <laughs> and people are like physically crossing the road as in like, oh my God, she's going to sob on me. You know, we're awfully yeah. English here, Leah. We don't like to sob, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's important, isn't it? That we do, you know, try and communicate with these people because you always, you feel different. You don't want people yeah. treating you differently. You want some kind of normalcy in it all, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, and, and that was that was one of the many lessons I, I tell. And the other thing I learned was sometimes you got to be to other people what you need. And that was hard because, you know, maybe four, four or five months after he had passed, I finally went back to work, you know, and I work in mental health. So imagine showing up every day and I got to help everybody else through their issues. And it was weird because at the time, a lot of my clients was dealing with grief. So here I am grieving. They're not aware that I'm grieving, but now I have to be what they, what I need to them. Um, and just showing up every day and encouraging them. But at the same time, while I was, you know, planting seeds of encouragement, then it would come back to me in the moments that I needed it. And so I had to learn that sometimes you have to be to others in your time of, of need and despair, what you need. And it's the weirdest thing. It was like one of the lessons that I was like, really? Like, why I got to learn this lesson? But I understand it now that sometimes you do. It, and it helps you to kind of take the, take your mind off of you for a moment and put it on somebody else who might even be in a worse place, you know, than you are. I can understand that. Because I think if you didn't, have that role to play if you didn't have that purpose in someone else's grief you might not address it in your own life yeah. we might just sit there in a state of inertia and not move forward and actually when you have to get up we say like loss of income as well as loss of a loved one 
mm-hmm. you know you still have to show up and I think it's probably really painful but us could be healing <laughs> you know yeah it's difficult it's difficult to still show up when you're still trying to figure out the pieces of your life um but it, I found that it was there was some healing in that and I think the biggest lesson I learned in that is that pain has a purpose and in the moment you don't see it you know I tell people if you would have told me three years ago that I'd be where I am today, I probably would have laughed at you and said, you're lying, you know, because in the moment when the, the, the death happens and the pain is so intense and it's so real, you could barely get out of bed <laughs> or you don't even want it. Like you don't want to face the world, you know? Um, but you, there's a moment where you realize that, and I'll say what my therapist said to me, she literally said, Leah, you cannot die with him. Because there was a moment in my journey where it was just like, well, take me to Lord, because I don't, I can't see my life without this person. I can't see my life, you know, not being a, a, a wife and all these things. And I think the biggest aha moment was realizing that just because the picture you, cre- you created for yourself did not manifest like you wanted it, doesn't mean that the picture won't manifest. It's just, you know, it's going to show up in a different way at a different time. So even though for me, it was, I'm supposed to be a wife, I had to realize that that doesn't mean it won't happen. It just will happen in its own time when it's supposed to happen with who it's supposed to happen with. The picture doesn't change. It just, it just might take a little longer for it to manifest. I'm trying to think of words. (laughs) That's like the second time. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm just like, and things happen in three, so I can only imagine where the next part of the show is going to go. <laughs> so, yeah, I've been in healthcare for 30 years, been in life for nearly 50 years. And what you're saying is exactly why I work with grief and things like that, because when I was nursing and like their loved one died, my patient died, I would see that that person little bit of them died really and their way of life died and so why I set up like a death cafe here why I wrote my grief book is because because of what you said really because we can't allow ourselves to die with them and it's just really poignant and it hurts I mean you had so many losses in such a short space of time you've probably had more losses in one year than people experienced in their lifetime yeah and you're still here telling the story and carrying on And I love it because what I used to get quite a lot with the younger ones in cancer would be like, they wouldn't know how to carry on. There's like, they were my other half. And I didn't have the courage that I have now to say, well, actually you was whole before you met them. So you will be whole again. Because, you know, if my husband died, I would be absolutely crap and probably wouldn't even read my own book. But it's just amazing to hear it from someone else, the positivity, the like collateral beauty within grief where there's a lesson in it and the fact that your therapist said like you know you can't allow yourself to die with them yeah it's just so powerful and I love the manifestation like so you was gonna you know you were engaged to be married but that doesn't mean that you won't be married and I just don't know if I know anyone braver than you Leo if I'm honest (laughs) (laughs) but it's honestly it's been a process though you know it's been a process these I didn't get to these revelations overnight you know it just it took doing the work, you know, going to therapy, having those moments of processing and realizing that I'm not honoring my loved ones if I just give up on life. 
you know, I'm not honoring, you know, the two years that I spent with my fiance before he died and the love we shared if I just give up. I'm not honoring my dad if I just give up. And so what better way to honor who they were in my life than to continue on this journey and continue to be the best version of myself and to continue to do the things that make me happy. That's honoring them, you know, not just wallowing in my grief. I remember hearing, I think the other aha moment for me was I heard and I was listening to a TED talk about grief. And the lady said that grieving is not about moving on, it's about moving forward. And that struck me like a lightning. I was like, oh my God, aha, yes. Because I think the narrative has always been, oh, you have to move on. I don't have to move on. I have to move forward though. And know that when you're moving forward, you're moving forward with your loved ones right there with you. They might not be physically right there, but they are around you. They let you know, like I'll share a story when I was getting ready to release my podcast. It was the funniest thing because I felt Joseph, that was my fiance's name. Like I felt his presence around me and I just laughed. And I was like, thank you for letting me know you're here. Cause I could just feel his presence. But it was a, a, a gentle reminder that I'm here. I might not physically be here, but I'm here and I'm watching you and I'm cheering for you and I'm excited for you. I'm just not physically here to do it. And so learning that it wasn't about, oh, I need to move on. It was about moving forward and knowing that their spirit is right there with you as you move forward. I love that. I was just thinking I might go for a rebrand because I'm Shelly F. Knight, life goes on, but (laughs) which is what my beautiful stepdad used to say. Uh, He died like 16 years ago and he used to, whatever went on, no matter how much proverbial poo hit the fan, um, he would always say like life goes on. Yeah. And used to be a relationship breakdown, job loss, you know, life goes on. And so that's why it's the words I use. But I think life goes forward. Yeah. It's a gentleness about it, isn't there? It is. And and I think it takes away the pressure because I know as experiencing grief, people will try to timestamp your grief. So after a certain time, they're like, oh, you shouldn't be crying about it over it anymore. You shouldn't be this. And it's like, there's no timestamp to grief. You know, there's no, I was having a, it's funny because I had a conversation with my grandmother when I was home in New York for Christmas. And I said to her, I said, grandma, how long did it take you? Because my, my aunt's dad was her first love and he had passed away. And I said, well, how long did it take you to like, know that you were ready for another relationship after him and she said 12 years and I just looked in like shock like 12 years that's a long here I am year three and you said 12 years and I said well why do you think that is grandma and she said you know there's just no time stamp to grief she said you gotta go through it you gotta you know go through the process and after 12 years, 12 years, I was like, you know what? I think I'm ready to, you know, try this thing again and put myself back out there. But then, you know, you hear the stories of people after two years. So I, I even in my book, I should, there's no timestamp. You know, if after two years, you feel like you're okay and you can do this thing, cool. If it takes you 15, cool. Only you're going to know when you are ready to, to take the next leap, whether that's another relationship or whether only you're no, you will know. And it's going to be when you're ready and not when the world says you should be ready. 
Yeah, and I think that's key, isn't it? I know sort of statistically speaking, like men tend to move on and remarry within 18 months where women are nearer seven years. But, you know, for those people that find love with the best friend straight away, it's okay, isn't it? I know it's hard as an onlooker, but you're not living in it, do you know what I mean? And sometimes yeah. it comes down to companionship, doesn't it? Being heard. Maybe it's destiny, who knows? But as you say, there's no timestamp and we just need to go with our grief, whether it's finding the next person or how long we're going to cry for. And I think yeah. that's really valuable. Yeah. Leah, I've absolutely loved speaking to you. You are the most beautiful soul. Thank you. Just absolutely amazing. My husband's going to want me, to, well, he also want to be more like you really take so out more quiet moments like when I was left speechless <laughs> he's probably going to try and be more Leah so he can have some silence in life but just the most beautiful soul I mean you have been through so much in your life like truly you know from like your upbringing all the death you've had in your life and things like yeah. that and you're just there going like well you know I'm just moving forward and as you said you didn't happen overnight but the beautiful lessons you've shared are just like eternally grateful. So thank you. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure you subscribe and leave a positive review. If you would like to create your own positive changes, you can buy Positive Changes, a self-kick book from all online book retailers or from ShellyFKnight.com. If you need a dollop of positivity until the next episode, come like and follow us over on Facebook at Shelley F. Knight, Life Goes On. As always, I've been Shelley F. Knight and you've been amazing. <laughs>